And so everywhere we look right now, right there are different ideas, views, understandings of what love is. I, th- I think even in this room, there's different, different ideas, different thoughts. You know, um, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to say that all of us are on the same page in understanding love, you know, and, and, and even experiencing love the same way, which is why we've got to come together and we've got to kind of make sure that, 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 that we know what this thing really is. That it's not, it's not just, just passion, it's not just emotion, it's not just feeling, it's not just tolerating, you know, people with whatever they want to do or whatever you want to do. This is what love is if you're taking notes. Love equals Jesus on the cross. What I want you to see this morning, as we start to unpack what love really is, I want you, ha- you cannot really capture the significance of what real love is without understanding the penalty of sin and the, the horror of sin, the distance it creates between us and God. Here is Jesus on the cross, choosing to be forsaken, choosing to be beaten, choosing to be crucified, choos- choosing to die so that you and I never have to be. You know what the cross is saying? You know what the cross is preaching to you? God wants you back. God wants you back. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus is on the cross being forsaken. He's on the cross giving his life. He's on the cross, you know, everyone's turned their backs on him so that you and I may be reconciled to the Father. God, listen to me, God from the cross is preaching, I want you back. This is the staggering love of God. One of the things you learn quickly when you open up this book and you start to read through it is that it's divided into two uh, significant sections. There's one section that predominantly focuses on light and another section that predominantly focuses on love. And so today, uh, we're going to spend our time focusing almost entirely on the topic of love once again. And there's really uh, two main things I want you to get, in, get inside of you today. There's two main things. Like if I could just have you walk away uh, knowing this and believing this, understanding this, it'd be these two things. One, I want you to understand how big God's love really is for you. Okay. The second thing is I want you to understand how being a recipient of, the, of this kind of love ought to affect how you live your life. Okay, so two big thoughts. How big the staggering love of God is for you, and then two, being a recipient of that kind of love, how that ought to affect how you live your life day in and, and, and day out. And so as we kind of launch this morning, I want to kind of uh, uh, revisit those scriptures that were just read on the video and just, just uh, set the table again. First uh, John chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 16, uh, the second half of verse 16 through 21, says this, God is love. Whoever live in, lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. All right. Can we just sort of keep it real here this morning? Can, can we just, can we just kind of be authentic. Can we let our hair down a little bit and just, just admit that love is a tough word? Can we just come together this morning as a family and just, and just admit that, you know, the word love creates all sorts of tension when we start to bring it up, especially in church, because I think that there's all, all kinds of different thoughts and views and definitions and ideas of what love is out there in, in secular culture. And so you talk about it in church and we're like, okay, which kind of love are we talking about? What do you really mean when you talk about love? I actually think a lot of the reason for why there's tension when we talk about love is because, you know, a, a lot of us, if not all of us, actually struggle to understand what love really is. Like, like the true idea of what love is. I, th- I think many of us have experienced love, different versions of love. I think a lot of us have uh, experienced things that have been called love, and that's actually created some confusion in us because 
we're going, you know, that, that, that was called love, but it doesn't really feel like love. And, and so there's, there's all these, these, these different ideas and versions of what love is. How many of y'all know that there's a big difference between the things you like and the things you love? How many of y'all love country music? Anybody love country music? There's a couple. Any, any big Garth fans? Okay, maybe a few. Of you. How many of you love sushi? Any big sushi fans? You love it. You're all in on sushi. Okay, your mouth is watering as we're talking about it. Lunch is just a little bit longer. You know. Okay, so any any of you willing to admit that, that you are a part of the Apple cult following? Like you're, you love Apple products. You've got the iPhone, the iPad, big on the MacBook. You know, whatever it is. Or any, anybody? Okay, okay. Now, how many of you would, would, would say you absolutely love your husband, you love your wife, you love your kids, right? Love your family, right? I mean, okay, so I just want to say there is a big difference between the things we like and the things we love. Let me just show you how that works. The things that I like, okay, might actually even be the th- things that I think I love. But what helps me understand the difference and what helps me understand that I actually really like these things, I don't really love these things, is the things I like are the things I'm going to throw in front of a bus to save my own life, okay? Uh, You know, the bus is like coming, charging down the road, and it's like me or, you know, my things (laughs) that I think I love, I'm throwing those things in front of the bus, right? Um, If I'm I'm about to be robbed blind, uh, you know, I, I am quick to give these things up, take my money Take my possessions, whatever it is, just spare my life. Okay, the things I love are the things I'm going to throw myself in front of the bus to save. Okay, the things I love are the things that when I'm when I'm getting robbed, blind, gun to the head, whatever it is, uh, I, I'm I I am protecting these things. I'm laying my life down for these things. You can't have these things, but you can have me. All right. So that right there starts to give us an idea of what love is. It starts to at least frame up for us the concept, and, and it, it doesn't necessarily define it for us, but it puts us on the right path to discovering what love really is. And so uh, what I, that's really what I want to do today, is take us on a journey of discovering what it is. Uh, and, and so to do that, we have to really ask the question, what is love? What is love? How many of y'all remember the Night at the Roxbury guys on Saturday Night Live, you know, who used to bob their heads to the Hathaway song, What is Love? Oh, baby, don't, right? Oh, baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Come on, come on. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, you can't, all right, I have just put a terrible picture in your head, okay? And, and so as I, as I look out there today and, and see some of you distracted or nodding off, I'm going to just assume that you're thinking about a Night at the Roxbury. Okay, so... That song actually asks a pretty valuable question. It asks a significant question that I think people throughout all of human history have been trying to answer. And so you ask that question, what is love, and you get a million different answers, don't you? Because to some, love is tolerance, which is the predominant thought today in secular culture. Love is tolerance. To some, love is passion. To some, love is a feeling. Okay, there, there's lots of different things people could say, but if you're, if you're anything like me, then you've, you've likely experienced and seen these different versions and ideas of love as well, and maybe even some of you have, have believed some of these ideas to, to be true. So what I'm really trying to get at, what I'm really trying to share with you today is that in our world and in our culture, love has become rebranded and redefined, and as a result, it means lots of different things to lots of different people. And so in our quest this morning to really de- determine what is love, we've got to ask some big questions, and, and we've got to uh, potentially deconstruct some things that, that we've believed along the way so that we can have a correct idea and understanding of what love really is. John Mark Comer, he says this, he says, love is a junk drawer we dump all sorts of ideas into just because we don't have anywhere to put them. I love God. And I love fish tacos. See the problem? The way we use the word is so broad, so generic, that I'm not sure we understand it anymore. That's that's the problem. That's the tension that the word creates. Well, what, what, what are you actually talking about when you talk about love? And so what I want to do is, is, is just sort of talk about some of the, the big thoughts on love in culture and, and just, just sort of evaluate them 
and, and maybe show why this isn't the kind of love we're talking about, okay? So I want to first talk about love as tolerance, if you're taking notes. Love as tolerance. This is the idea that rather than judge people, we should love them. Now, that, I, I, I believe that. I, I agree with that in, in a lot of ways. The problem is, what kind of love are we talking about? And when there's a million different ideas of what love is and all these different definitions of what love is, you say, well, let's not judge them, let's love them. And I might agree with you, but you know, we're, we're, we're actually talking about something completely different. To most people in, in secular culture, the idea of love as tolerance is the cultural, bu- cultural buzz phrase, love is love, right? Which means that love is whatever I want love to be. And it might mean something different for me than it means for you, so don't judge me, just love me, right? Don't judge, just, just love. And what people are really getting at, what most people are saying, you know, who, who love this buzz phrase and talk about, you know, love in this way, what they're really trying to say is that you and I people should not call out anything as wrong, okay? Because even though it's wrong for you, it might not be wrong for me. Just because it's wrong for those of you who follow Jesus, it, it's not necessarily wrong for others, right? There's different views. And so that's, that's why people struggle with this idea uh, and why, why they subscribe to this view is because they're saying, look, you should not ever call out something as wrong. As long as it's not hurting anybody, who are we to judge, and while this sounds nice, and it sounds forward, and it sounds progressive, it just doesn't work. Let me kind of show you why. A lot of you have probably heard already in different places that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. All right, lots of people talk about this, that the opposite of love is apathy. It's indifference. It's, you know, whatever. Do, it, do what you want. And to me, there seems to be a fine line between tolerance and apathy. Like they seem, they seem to be nearly the same thing. Look at the language of tolerance. Do what you want. I don't really care. It's good for you. That's fine. Whatever you want to do, you do you, I'll do me. And quite honestly, this sounds a whole lot more like apathy than it sounds like love. And so there, is, there, are, there are massive issues I don't even have time to get into to, to completely deconstruct the issue of love as tolerance, but it is, it is massively problematic because love isn't whatever you want love to be. Love isn't whatever I want it to feel like. Love is clearly laid out and it is clearly defined in the Holy Scriptures, and we're going to talk about that here in a second. The other big bucket I think, I think people uh, subscribe to and, and view love is, is, uh, is this one, love as passion. A lot, of, a lot of people view love as passion. And so to many of us, maybe even in this room and to many people out there somewhere, love is having a passion for something. It's the word we call on to describe all of our feelings of affection. So, you know, we love football, right? Or we love hiking. Or we love that new record that was just put out by our favorite band. Or we love chips and queso. You know, whatever it is. You know, we love certain things. Passion. I remember in 2003, I was watching uh, the NCAA tournament, and I grew up in, in Arizona. I've shared that with you many times, and I, I grew up as a passionate University of Arizona uh, Wildcat basketball fan, and I'm watching the tournament, and Arizona has made it into the Elite Eight, uh, which is really far. They are one step away from getting into the Final Four, and uh, the game goes into overtime, and they're playing Kansas, who I I, I, just, I just felt like I should say this. I hate Kansas, okay? All right, all right. Anyway, but they are playing Kansas, and, I, and it's in overtime. I'm living in Spokane, Washington at the time, and I am watching this game at night by myself, all lights out, don't want anybody near me, and I've got the TV right in front of me, okay? Like, and I, the, game, the game comes down to the wire, and Arizona misses a, a three at the end that would have won the game, and I am just beside myself, right? I have... I want you to know that your pastor has matured and grown in a lot of ways, including in how I watch sports since then. But back then, man, I'm like hugging the toilet thinking I'm going to throw up, you know. Like I, I am like so emotionally invested into this game. I actually am so angry. I put on my, my shoes. I run eight miles to the church that I was interning at. And, and, I, and I get there, and I'm just, I need to blow off some steam. I get there, and I'm like, shoot, I, I don't have my car. I've got to like I got to get home, you know? And so I, I go in and I, I start calling people to come give me a ride home because I don't want to run the eight miles back. 
A lot of people view love as passion, and I think that sometimes, like, I, I even fall into that category. You know, I'm like, I am, I am so passionate. I'm so all in. And it's for sure, for sure shown up like that in my life throughout the years. Interestingly enough, when we aim this word defined as passion at people, uh, we often mean the exact same thing. And the problem with that is, like, there, there, are, there are levels of passion, right? Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this throughout your life, but it seems like passion can fluctuate. It can go up and it can go down. It, it can be, you know, a, a lot. It can be big in, in one season and, and less in another. You know, I, I used to watch football all the time, all the time when we first got married, and my life has gotten busier, just so you know. And I, I'm like, I, mean, I don't think I can sit and watch like, like, like that long anymore. You know what I mean? And, and it just changes. Priorities change. And I, I still care about it, but I'm not going to, like, lose sleep over it anymore. You know what I mean? And, and so the problem is when we talk about love as passion, passion changes. Passion changes. A lot of people define love as a feeling. Let's look at that category for a second. Similar to passion, but, but, but a little bit different. Love, by this definition, is pure, unfiltered emotion. And, and when, when you view love as a feeling, then your role in love is, is passive. It's something that happens to you. Almost all cultural signs point to this dangerous lie, that love is a feeling, that it's a volcanic eruption of emotions. Think of the phrase, falling in love. It's like, it's the idea of, you know, tripping over a rock or over a curb. And, and in some ways, it is that. And in some ways, when that happens, it's absolutely fantastic, right? You Many of you understand what that, that's like, to fall into love. But the dark reality to falling in love is this, is that if we can fall into it, then we can fall out of it. What happens when the emotions fade or the emotions disappear? Now, now just to be clear, with love, you absolutely need to feel something. So feeling is important. But that alone is not enough. And so everywhere we look right now, right there, are different ideas, views, understandings of what love is. I, th I think even in this room, there's different, different ideas, different thoughts. You know, um, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to say that all of us are on the same page in understanding love, you know, and, and, and even experiencing love the same way, which is why we've got to come together and we've got to kind of make sure that, 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 that we know what this thing really is, that it's not, it's not just, just passion, it's not just emotion, it's not just feeling it's not just tolerating, you know, people with whatever they want to do or whatever you want to do. This is what love is if you're taking notes. Love equals Jesus on the cross. Love defined in scripture is this. Love equals Jesus on the cross. John 14:10, six verses prior to the ones we're looking at today, the apostle John says this. He says, "This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us." and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We see people struggle with this a little bit. Because I think, I think we can understand, you know, that that's a big sacrifice and that's a big deal. If anybody did something like, like that for me, I mean, that's, that's, that's a kind of love that, that I've received from no one else, right? I think we get that in our heads. But a lot of times, the reason why we struggle is because we wonder, like, what's the big deal anyway? Like, like why, why something so dramatic? Why does something this dramatic have to happen? Like, I, I, just, I, just, I, just, I just don't get it. Well, here's the deal. We know that in human relationships, interpersonal relationships here on earth, if someone breaks the relationship, there's a violation of either trust or they break your confidence, right? That, that's what happens when a relationship is, is it broken. And you can't just click your fingers to make it go away. Have you ever tried to do that? If someone, someone hurts you, someone offends you, you ever tried to just click your fingers and say, ah, oh, it's all good, it never happened? Like, you can't just do that. And if you, if you do, do do that, then you're just naive, right? You're naive. You're setting, yourself to be hurt, you're setting yourself up to be hurt again and again and again. And in that case, all you can really do is pretend like it never happened. And no one ever heals that way. Did you notice that? No one ever heals that way. You ever had like a big blow-up fight? You ever had like an issue with, with a family member or a spouse or somebody? You guys like, you go to bed, you wake up the next morning, you pretend like nothing ever happened, okay? Because you just, you just don't want to kind of like have the hard conversation. And I, and, and I get that, right? That's, that's not fun. 
problem is nobody ever heals. The big deal when it comes to Jesus on the cross is that this is what God is showing us. That forgiveness is hard. That forgiveness is costly. That real forgiveness, especially when there's sin involved, requires hard conversations. It requires repentance. It requires asking for forgiveness if if the relationship is going to be restored and, and reconciled, you know? So why can't you just click your fingers when somebody wrongs you or somebody hurts you or somebody close to you, you know, breaks your heart? Why can't you just click your fingers and forget about it? Because, like, real forgiveness is costly and it's hard and it requires sitting down and having some tough conversations. John Stott says this, he says, the reason why many people give the wrong answers to the questions about the cross and even ask the wrong questions is that they have never carefully considered either the seriousness of their sin nor the majesty of God. One of the common questions people ask is like, why was the cross even necessary? Why was this even even a big deal? Like I said a minute ago, it just seems a bit grandiose. It seems a bit dramatic. Like, why go through all of that? Why did Jesus have to die? And a lot of people will say things like, why couldn't God just click his fingers and forgive everything and everyone? Maybe, maybe you've wondered that. Like, I appreciate the gesture, but why is that so necessary? Well, if you can't even do that in your human relationships, just click your fingers and forget about it. How can the creator of the universe do that with a total distortion and dysfunction of sin on planet Earth? So what we learn here is that because of Adam's sin, because of our own sin, because of our own rebellion, our own willfulness, our own desire to do whatever we want in life in light of God's care and commands for our life, sin results in this profound separation from God. That's what sin does. Sin is what causes our relationship with God to become broken. Something has to happen to close the gap. Something has to happen to mediate the restoration of our relationship with God because sin, if you're listening, you got to hang in with me for just a few more seconds here. Sin puts us in a state of penalty, wrath, separation, and bondage. This is the state we find ourselves in apart from Christ. Penalty, wrath, separation, and bondage. Now that is a lot. That's a lot of theology right there, I get it. What I want you to see, what I want you to see this morning, as we start to unpack what love really is, I want you, ha- you cannot really capture the significance of what real love is without understanding the penalty of sin and the, the horror of sin, the distance it creates between us and God. Here is Jesus on the cross, choosing to be forsaken choosing to be beaten, choosing to be crucified, choosing to die so that you and I never have to be. 1 John 4, 16, the Apostle John defines love this way. He says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Okay, so there you have it right there. If you want to know what love looks like, don't look to a dictionary, don't look to culture, Look to Jesus hanging on a cross outside of Jerusalem. Look at God in the flesh giving away his life for the world. This is what love is. This is what I would call, if you're taking notes, the staggering love of God. The staggering love of God. Have you ever just stopped and pondered how, how, I mean, just significant the love of God really is? Has the love of God just as you've thought about it, maybe not even just experienced it, but as you've thought about it, has it ever just like stopped you in your tracks? Have you ever just been like, what? What? It's, it's, it's staggering. It's a showstopper. You know, some modern theologians, they struggle with God sending his son as a sacrifice. And so as a result... They like to say things like, no, this view of atonement is just divine child abuse. Like, they, they, they struggle with this view of God sending his son as a sacrifice. They think, how could a heavenly father punish his son? How could a heavenly father punish his son? Well, this, this truth is to fundamentally understand what's happening here. 
Listen, God isn't punishing Jesus because he's angry with him. This is a covenant of grace for our redemption. This is a full-scale divine, divine rescue effort into the human race. Yes, it's true that Jesus has sent. You know, one of our, one of our flagship scriptures, you know, we, 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 we pretty much all have memorized is John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave, or, right, or he sent his son. Uh, and so, yes, it's true that, that God gave his son, that Jesus was sent into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But don't take that to mean that Jesus didn't want to come. Don't take that to mean that God just called the shots and Jesus is like, ah, I guess. Jesus wanted to come. John 10, 18, Jesus says this. These are his words. He says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again, for this is what my Father has commanded. Fleming Rutledge, he's an Episcopalian priest, says this, he says, with all due respect to the religions of the world, there is no other story like the Christian story. The God who thunders, the God who persecutes and condemns, the God who wreaks vengeance, yes, we know this God from the caricatures, we know this God from the old paintings, we know this God from hearing continual references to the Old Testament God, but this is not who God is. The Old Testament God is the one who has come down from his throne on high into the world of sinful human flesh and of his own free will and decision has come under his own judgment in order to deliver us from everlasting condemnation and bring us into eternal life. He has not required human sacrifice. He has himself become the human sacrifice. He has not turned us over and forsaken us. He was himself turned over and forsaken. This is a love that is so powerful. A love willing to give itself. A love willing to sacrifice itself. That sort of love, how many of y'all know, is going to leave an impact? That sort of love is going to leave a permanent mark on someone's soul. That sort of love is going to change someone forever. And so on the cross, if you can just picture the scene just right outside of Jerusalem, Jesus on the cross, Jesus is pointing out the staggering nature of God's love. He's pointing out the extent to which God went through to bring us back. You know what the cross is saying? You know what the cross is preaching to you? God wants you back. God wants you back. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus is on the cross being forsaken. He's on the cross giving his life. He's on the cross. You know, everyone's turned their backs on him so that you and I may be reconciled to the Father. God, listen to me, God from the cross is preaching, I want you back. This is the staggering love of God. Who does this? Nobody but God, I want you to look at the extent to which Jesus went through to rescue us and to get us back. I'm going to just throw you some quick scriptures here. Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Isaiah talks about here, he basically says, you know, we are healed by his pain. He went through all of this. He went through all of this pain and all of this suffering, and, and as a result, it released healing for you and for me. You notice that he doesn't say it was his strength that did this. It was his pain. It was what he suffered and went through that provided healing for you and me. John one twenty nine, the Gospel of John. This is uh, John the Baptist saying this as he looks at Jesus. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That is the good news right there. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds, 
you have been healed. Peter references the, the, the verses from Isaiah that we just read. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. To bring you to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Okay, big question. So what length will God go to get you back? What length will God go to get you back? He'll go this far. He'll go this far. Every conceivable view of forgiveness or atonement is available because Jesus has given his life for you. He's given his life for me. He was forsaken. He was beaten. He was rejected so that you and I never have to be. And this is why John... In this little letter of 1 John, this is why he can make the enormous claim here in verse 16 that God is love. That God is love. Well, here's the problem with that. When it comes to the love of God, you got to hear me here, okay? The problem with this, everything I just said, everything I just taught, everything you just heard, everything that, that, that was just proclaimed, the problem with this is that when it comes to the love of God, we often get this in our minds and sometimes we even let it touch our emotions. But the question is, do we get it into our spirit? Do we get it into our spirit? Do we really get it into our operating system? You see, most of us have experienced such deep levels of pain and trauma and abandonment in our lives that if you paste theology and doctrine on top of it, you don't touch the brokenness and the wounds that exist in our hearts. Did you hear what I just said? Most of us have experienced such deep levels of pain and trauma and abandonment at different times. That's why, that's why sometimes we experience, like I said earlier, we experience love, something called love, but it doesn't always feel like love. Most of us have experienced such deep levels of pain and trauma and abandonment in our lives that even if you paste good theology and doctrine on top of it, you don't touch the brokenness that exists deep within our heart. And so what happens with a lot, a lot of people is they come to faith in Christ. They're deeply wounded, deeply affected. They've experienced, you know, terrible ideas of what love really is, of what love is. And what happens is they come to faith in Jesus and their worldview might change. So now they become a more moral person. I'm going I'm to have better morals. I'm going I'm to do better things. I'm going I'm to have better character. Their worldview changes, but their heart is still incredibly wounded. You can believe all the right things, right, listen to me, you can believe all the right things and yet still have things so wrong and so deeply broken deep on the inside. And this is why I think, I think so many people struggle because, because we talk about the love of God, talk about how, how staggering the love of God really is. And I just gave you just this laundry list of scripture and I just showed you the gospel. And the problem is sometimes we just let it touch our minds or we let it touch our, our emotions even to a degree because we hear some great worship sets and we have some times where like the, you know, we feel like the presence of God and all that and we're like, oh man, my emotions were moved. You got to get this into your spirit. You got to get this into your spirit because when we get this into our spirit, it literally changes everything. When the love of God is non-negotiable in your life. You know it, you believe it, it's set and it's secure in you. It literally changes everything about you. It changes your entire life. Listen to me. Jesus isn't dying on the cross so that you and I can just believe that he died on the cross. You know? I mean, we, 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 kinda, we kinda sometimes like reduce it down to that. Like, what do, you do? do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Like, Jesus didn't die on the cross just so that we could believe that he died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross to break us free from the bondage of sin and to bring us into an entirely new family. That is the staggering love of God. To do for you what you could never do for yourself, and it has to change everything for us. Jesus famously says in the Gospels, he says to his disciples, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. You see, when we get the staggering love of God into our spirit, it changes everything. And that's why Jesus could say something like this to his followers. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
But if we run our lives with this distorted view of what love is, how do we love like Jesus? How do we love in a way, the way that he has loved us? We don't. We can't. It's not possible. And this is what John is really getting at in this passage of Scripture. In, in, in the very next verse, verse 17, this is, what, this is what he says. He says, in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. In this world, we are like him. We're like Jesus. If you're taking notes this morning, the role of the Christian in society is to image Jesus. This is the call. This is the standard. This is the expectation. We image Jesus. Instead of sitting back and fuming over the headlines, which you know, many of us do, Christians should model the staggering love of God to those who are struggling to know what love even is. You know, Josh, in his communion message this morning, he was talking about, you know, Christian merch from years, years gone by. I thought he was going to steal something from me, but years ago, right, there was really popular bracelets out there, WWJD bracelets. Remember, anybody have a, did anybody own a WWJD bracelet? It stood for, what would Jesus do? People wore these all the time. It was supposed to be that thing that when you're making a decision, when you're like tempted to do something, you'd see that, you go, okay, well, in this moment, like what would Jesus do? And it kind of just makes you, you know, turn and walk in a different direction. Some people would look at that and they'd go, okay, what would Jesus do? Well, good thing I'm not Jesus, right? And then they'd go ahead and just keep doing what they wanted to do. Well, I'm not Jesus, so, you know, I can't, I can't be perfect. And uh, would use that as an excuse or a license for sin. These bracelets got so popular that everyone was wearing them and they kind of uh, eventually forgot what they even meant. We are to live in this world like Jesus. We are to live in this world like Jesus. 1 John 2, 6, going a couple chapters back in this same letter by the Apostle John, he says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. But if we're going to walk as Jesus walked, then we have to ask the question, like, what would, what would Jesus actually do? What would he actually do? I saw a sermon series by another pastor one time. He, he, he titled it, What Would Jesus Undo? <laughs> I think that'd be an interesting thing to talk about, you know? But uh, what would Jesus do? How many of you guys remember years ago in the early 2000s, the cult classic Napoleon Dynamite? Anybody watch that movie? Anybody watch that over and over? I was a youth pastor at that time, so unfortunately, like, I, I mean, it, it was ridiculous. And, I mean, we watched that movie so many times with kids. And, and uh, if you remember that movie, do you remember the scene where Napoleon and his brother Kip, they go to Rex's dojo to find out about, what was it? Rex Kwando, Right? Rex was this goofy guy. He's standing up in front of the class with these American flag sweatpants and these, you know, wraparound, uh, you know, uh, shades with yellow lenses in them. You remember who Rex was? Um, and he's offering in this class to teach his special style of martial arts called Rex Kwando. And he offers it to these guys for a low price of $300. It's an eight-week class. Now, if you remember the movie, like Rex or, or Kip and Napoleon, they walk away, they walk out of this, this, uh, this dojo, and they are, they're, they're like so disappointed, right? They're dejected because they, they really want to be like Rex, but they just don't have the money to sign up for the classes, right? They think Rex is just so cool. Look at this guy. They want to be just like him. Now, most of us in this place are, 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 are pretty okay with not becoming like Rex, right? Especially if it's going to cost us $300, but the text this morning, especially in 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did, really tells us that if we want to be like Jesus, you don't have to sign up for some eight-week class. You don't have to pay all this money. You have to just walk and live like Jesus did. Well, that brings a pretty massive question. And the question is, how do we walk like Jesus? Let me just say this. If you've never asked this question when you've been alone by yourself, maybe with God, how do I walk like Jesus? That's, that, that's a problem. This is a question that like all of us should ask. 
at multiple times in our lives. How do I actually walk like Jesus? Well, well, there, there, there's many ways, right? There, there's many different thoughts. I, I could spend weeks talking about this. We could have an entire sermon series on how to walk like Jesus. How do we image Jesus today? To be a disciple of Jesus means to model the staggering love of God and to take on the priorities and the character of Jesus. That's really what it means. But how do I do that? I mean, I could have like a whole six, eight, ten week series talking about how to walk like Jesus. And we could talk about things like about how Jesus prioritized prayer. Right? We can talk about that. We can talk about how he, he regularly withdrew from the crowds and spent time with his father. We can talk about how Jesus always prioritized the father's will, how he always said, you know, I only do what I see my father doing, and what that really means, you know, and, and the ramifications that has for our lives in every area of our life if we actually lived in such a way that we only did what we saw the father doing. Jesus prioritized the kingdom regularly, right? He was he was without a doubt, a bringer of the kingdom of God. The Bible tells us he healed everyone who came to him. He was on a mission to push back the kingdom of darkness. Jesus was a, was a bringer of the kingdom. He prioritized the kingdom. But in context of the verses that, that John is giving us today, I want to just focus on maybe one area uh, here as I close and let these guys come on up. And it's that Jesus prioritized people like in a big way. It was unconditional love. It was deep compassion. And this is unmistakable to the way that Jesus walked, the way he lived his life. 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 through 21 says this. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Jesus prioritized people. Jesus was passionate about people. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. His will is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus prioritized people. He cared for them deeply. The Bible says that when he looked at, 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 when he looked at the crowds, that he was moved with compassion because he saw them as like sheep without a shepherd, and so he began to teach and began to, to shepherd them, to begin to give them direction. He prioritized people. Look at this thought with me. And this maybe could be a bumper sticker. We could bring the Christian bumper stickers back. If people, especially marginalized and broken people, step into our Christian community, they should never want to leave. They should never want to leave. Look, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we preached through it all last summer. It's one of the most ethically rigorous speeches in all of religious history, all religions, right? It's incredible. It's not easy. It's a tough pill to swallow. Try reading through the whole thing one morning and then, and then, and then just go, you know, live it out, you know, the rest of the day. You know, you, you probably fail by the time the coffee's done brewing. Jesus had a ridiculously high standard of obedience, no doubt. Yet he excessively loved those who fell short time and time and time again. Look at Luke 15. He said, it says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners to eat with him? Look, Jesus wasn't pro-tax collecting. And yet tax collectors flocked to him. Jesus was absolutely opposed to adultery, but he stood up for adulterers. He didn't stand up for their behavior. He stood up for them. He stood against sin, and yet sinners wanted to be in his presence. The marginalized, the hurting, the ashamed, and shunned, they all wanted to be around Jesus. Listen, if Jesus had a church, all of these people would have gone to it. If Jesus had a church today, there's a decent chance some of us wouldn't want to go. People were a priority to Jesus. Listen to this. Look at this thought. If people were a priority to Jesus, then they have to be a priority to us too. Okay? 
1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. And so there's two massive thoughts I gotta get you to, to, to just focus on and get into your spirit this morning. I want you to, to know how big the staggering love of God is for you, the links through which he went to bring you back, to reconcile you in your, you know, in your relationship with the Father. But I want you to also understand on this side how being a recipient of this kind of love ought to affect how you live your life. I mean, either it's, either it's a ridiculous amount of love or it's not. Either it's changed everything once and for all or it hasn't. It's ridiculous. It, 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 it's mind-boggling, right? The love of God. And what Jesus says time and time again and what the apostles talk about in the New Testament is that if you're a recipient of this kind of love, it, it should absolutely change the way you live. It should change the priorities that you have in your life. And, and in this case right here, it should cause us to prioritize people. People come into our Christian community like Jesus, like being around Jesus, they should never want to leave. This is why I think, you know, from the get-go, when I started on day one as the lead pastor here, I, I said, we, we want to create a church where God is easy to find. Right? We, want, we want to be like Jesus. We want to image Jesus to the world. Let me uh, have you look at a couple more things with me. Look at this thought. Christians and churches have a healthy mandate to stand against destructive ideologies and radical narratives that have risen up within the dominant culture. True. Absolutely true. But never at the expense of love. You can just go read 1 Corinthians 13 on your own. Christians and churches have a healthy mandate to stand up against destructive ideologies, radical narratives, all of that, but never at the expense of love. Never at the expense of love. Ephesians 4.15 tells us to speak the truth in love, right? Standing against ideologies and destructive narratives. Jesus never, Jesus never, he never allowed people to, to become injured by him standing up for and against, standing up against destructive ideologies and, and radical narratives. He prioritized people. And I think that we've got to be careful. I think we have to live as people who have experienced and received the radical love of God. And as a result, we want other people to experience the same thing. It doesn't matter where they're at. It doesn't matter, you know, what's, what their life looks like in the moment. Jesus met every single person right where they were. Leslie Newbegin, missionary, says this. He says, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. So the way we love is different. The way we react to things is different. The things we say, the things we don't say is different. We react in such a way that people go, man, that, that doesn't make sense. Why would somebody say that? Or why would somebody not do that? It provokes a, qu a question in people. Man, I want people to look at my life, look at how I'm living. And I want people to come up and ask me, and ask me why, do, why do you do what you do? Why do you live the way you live? Why did you not just yell at that person? You know, I, I want people to ask me those questions and just be like, look, it's, it's, it's because of Jesus. 
We have to live our lives in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. That's really all I got today. And I just, I don't know, I just, I just felt like I just would wear my heart on my sleeve a little bit today. Like it's got to be evident. We don't just keep this to ourselves. It affects the way we live our life. Why don't you stand with me this morning? When it comes to spiritual formation or discipleship, maybe that's a word you're familiar with, we should always be asking ourselves this question. Look at it with me on the screen. Who am I by what I am doing? Who am I becoming by what I am doing? That's a question we, we should always be asking ourselves. Who am I becoming by what I am doing? What are you an image of? In whose steps are you walking? What is forming you? Would you bow your heads with me this morning here? You're here today and you would just say, Pastor Jordan, you know what? I just, uh, for whatever reason, need a fresh touch of the love of God. Maybe you've experienced that one time. Maybe it's been years since it's, it's really hit you in the face. Maybe it's been a while since you've contemplated how, how, how staggering that love really is. And you would just say today, Jordan, I, I, Pastor Jordan, I just need to, I need, I need, I need to experience again. I need to feel again the love of God. Would you just let me see your hands, every head raised? You're just fresh today. You just need to, it's just, I, I need the love of God again. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would just pour out into this place just radical amounts of love. Like a big bowl or a big pitcher, would you just from heaven in your goodness and in your grace begin to pour into your kids this morning fresh love in Jesus' name. Love that is not, that has nothing to do with the love we see in culture, the love we see defined around us. Love that is so different. Love that is sacrificial. Love that is all in all the time. God, I pray that you would just confront right now anywhere that we have been, we've been walking with a distorted viewer, distorted understanding of what love is. I pray freedom in this house right now, God. Would the love of God free us in this place right now? All shame is gone. All guilt is gone. Freedom in Jesus' name right now. God, you did it. You paid it all to bring us into a life that we could have never found on our own. And I pray now in Jesus' name that we would just become so alive and aware of the radical, staggering love of God. And as a result, it would change us. It would shape us. It would affect how we walk, how we live, how we talk, how we interact, the things we joke about, the things we let out of our mouth, the things we let into our heart the things we let into our soul, oh God. I pray that the radical love of God would affect how we live our life from this day forward in Jesus' precious name, amen.